2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. It is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Remember that in verse 8 of this chapter, what we looked at a couple of weeks ago, but you know, when the last time that we were in this chapter, in verse 8, Paul confidently declared that we are hard pressed or squeezed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, and even struck down, but not destroyed. That is the promise of the Lord. That's what he says he will do. That's how he dealt with his children. That's how Paul experienced the power of the Lord. And that's what he testifies to. But it is very clear, as we have said multiple times, and you'll see it again today, Paul doesn't say everything was great. Everything was joyful. Everything was easy. He says, I despaired even of life. I despaired even of life. So when he says, I was hard-pressed but not not crushed, he means something different than what he was experiencing even in the natural. In his own circumstances, in what he was going through, he was feeling like he was crushed to the point that he was saying, I despaired even of life. Paul is saying this. So when we read this, we keep this in mind and we look at all that he is stating. But it's because... Paul firmly believes in the preserving work of the Lord that he states here in verse 13, it is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. When he says it is written, he's referring to a verse from Psalm 116 which would have reminded his readers of the entire psalm. Throughout the Bible you will see this, that where a reference is made, just like Jesus made a reference from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wasn't saying, oh God, you've abandoned me. He was pointing to the psalms. And by referring to just one verse, the readers, the hearers would say, oh, this is what he's referring to, and would go and look at that entire psalm. And so it behooves us, it is useful for us to go and look at Psalm 116. And that way we'll better understand Paul's comment. So here's Psalm 116. It says, I love the Lord for he heard my voice. 
He heard my cry for mercy because he turned his ear to me. I will call on him as long as I live. The cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came over me. I was overcome by distress and sorrow. Then I called on the name of the Lord. Lord, save me. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. The Lord protects the unwary. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return to your rest, my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. For you, Lord, have delivered me from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I trusted in the Lord when I said, I am greatly afflicted. In my alarm, I said, everyone is a liar. What shall I return to the Lord for all his goodness to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful servants. Truly, I am your servant, Lord. I serve you just as my mother did. You have freed me from my chains. I will sacrifice a thank offering to you and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the, praise, in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Paul says he believes like the psalmist. That last phrase there, when the psalmist says, praise the Lord, that is the Hebrew, hallelujah. You know, and Paul is yelling hallelujah just as, just as that psalmist did. He's crying that out. He's singing that out. Why? Because he has the same faith. He has the same spirit. He sacrifices the same thank offering. His thanksgiving is overflowing to the glory of God. Why? Because he knows that no matter what happens in the earth, no matter that the cords of death entangle us, no matter that the anguish of the grave, no matter if distress, no matter if sorrow overcomes us, no matter whether we are squeezed, perplexed, persecuted, or struck down, God, who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead, will hear us, save us, comfort us, and ultimately also raise us with Jesus and present us to himself. Oh, those are shouting words. Those are cheering words. Those are words where we say, praise the Lord. I, amen. What, what could be better? That the Lord says, this is what I will do for you. All through the Old Testament, even before Jesus came, into this earth. This is what he was promising the people. They looked forward and believed in faith. Once Jesus came, we look back and believe in faith. But it's the same promise that the Lord says, I will be with you. I will comfort you. I will do these things for you so that you are not crushed, so that you are not persecuted or destroyed or despairing or whatever else. But I want to point this out to you. Notice that in Psalm 116 verse 15, it says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful servants. What would we like to hear? 
Precious in the sight of the Lord is when I work hard for God. Right? We think that what we do here on earth is what matters. And it is. God, the Lord, asks us to live for Him, to labor for Him, to be faithful to Him, to pray without ceasing, to do all of these things. And when we do that, clearly it pleases the Lord. But the Bible says that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints, is the death of His faithful servants. We think of earthly death, the putting away of these jars of clay as something to avoid. We're like, oh, I got I to gotta fight death. Jesus is waiting for us. And so he says God sees it as precious because for us to live is Christ and to die is gain. Why? Because God knows that no matter what we went through in the earth, when we die, he raises us with Jesus to receive us to himself. We don't dread death. We don't have to be anxious about it. I was talking to someone recently and he was talking about some of these things that are going on and what will happen in the end times and, I, you know, and so on. And I said, well, what's the worst that can happen? Somebody persecutes you. Somebody does something against you. Somebody kills you. What's, is that the worst that can happen? We'll be with the Lord. We'll be received to him. Jesus himself presents us to God and we're received in Christ. Precious in the sight of the Lord. Well, which brings us back in the passage that we read to chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. Therefore, therefore what? Because we are with the Lord in life, while in death, we do not lose heart. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we, our jars of clay, are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. We are being transformed into his image, into his likeness. So what? For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all outweighs all of these light and momentary troubles. The glory that awaits. So we fix our eyes on what is seen. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Which raises two questions. How do we deal with our present troubles? Because we have present troubles. And how do we fix our eyes on what is unseen? Or to state it more simply, how do we see what is unseen? Isn't, the, isn't that a paradox? Isn't that seemingly impossible? But let's consider the first question. How do we deal with our present troubles? When you go to the doctor complaining of a literal pain in the neck, right? No, no, you know, not I have a pain in the neck. Literal pain in the neck. The doctor will typically ask you to rate the pain on a 10-point scale. On a 10-point scale, how much is it? Right? Have you had that? Has anyone? If you haven't had that yet, you're too young. As you get older, and, you know, somebody will be asking you that question. On a 10-point scale, how much does it hurt? Right? Now, if you've experienced the pain of childbirth and considered that pain as a 10, you may rate this present pain as a 4. You're like, ah, it's, just, it's a 4. But if the greatest pain you've ever experienced was when you stubbed your toe that one time, 
You may rate this present pain as an eight. Oh, it really hurts. Doc, it really hurts. It's an eight, right? What's the difference in the two ratings? Why are two people rating the same kind of pain so differently? It's because of our point of reference, our point of comparison. You see, when we encounter trouble, we compare it to what we have already experienced or we compare it to what others are experiencing or have experienced or we go to a trusted source who tells us what we should expect and we say, oh, based on that, this is a big trouble. This is a small trouble. This is a medium trouble. This is a trouble that I can handle. This is a trouble that I cannot handle. But we're not judging those things based on an objective standard. We're making a comparison. We're comparing that situation to something else. And based on that, based on our comparative analysis, we decide what we will do about our troubles. The Bible provides an entirely different frame of reference an entirely different comparison scale than what the world offers. The Bible doesn't say, did you go through a problem before? How would it compare? On a scale of 1 to 10, do you feel this is worse or better? No. The Bible says, instead of looking at ourselves or even others, we're to look to Jesus. We're to ask the question, what troubles did Jesus face? Why did he face those troubles? How did he handle those troubles? What did he do that he has set an example for us? Our point of comparison is not with ourselves. Our point of comparison, our point of encouragement, our point of reference is what the Christ, is what our Lord has done for us. And in this passage, there are three Jesus-oriented comparisons to pay attention to. The first one is that he says, our suffering is light. Our suffering is light. When you're going through suffering, when you're going through a difficult period of life, no matter how long it lasts, it may be short, it may be long, it doesn't seem light. It doesn't seem like it's easy. It doesn't seem like you can even bear it. It doesn't seem like you can go through it. So why does the Bible say that it is light? Because when Jesus took on the sins of the whole world upon himself, when he said, these are the ones that have rejected me, but I have prayed for them, and I have seen, Lord, that they will be preserved, and through them I will build my church. When he took on those burdens, when he decided, when he said, I will purify for myself a people that are special to me, that are dedicated for me, that are going to be used by me to fulfill my purpose, to bring the world to salvation. He took on a burden on that cross that we could never compare to. And so we, he says, Paul says, the word says, in comparison to what the Lord has done for us, the pain that he bore, the suffering that he endured, all the things that he went through, our suffering our trouble is light. Again, I'm not minimizing the pain that we feel. I'm not telling you that what you're going through is not real. 
you absolutely need to take that in the right ways to the Lord. And we're going to come to the next point or towards the end of what I'm sharing this morning. I want to come to the point of application. But I'm, I'm saying to you right now that how do we deal with our present troubles? We've got to change our perspective. We've got to change our frame of reference, our comparison. Because if we look at our present trouble based on our past experience, we will be overwhelmed by it. But if we look at our present trouble in light of what Christ has done, we'll say, Lord God, you have done more. You have done far greater. You are, the contrast here is not even comparable. So I can come to you because you understand. If Jesus had never endured the cross, what will you say to the Lord? I'm suffering, but you haven't suffered. And though, so you can't relate to me? No. Because Jesus has suffered, we're able to say, Lord God, I am able to come to you. And I'm able to lay down this burden at your feet. Now, the next comparison is that of time. Paul says, the word says, that our light and momentary troubles, momentary troubles, if you've been struggling with something, physical ailment, for years, if you've been struggling with something or if you've been burdened by something for years, it doesn't seem momentary. It doesn't seem short. It doesn't seem like it'll pass easily. But the word uses that, this way to describe it, your light and momentary troubles. You know why? Because what is the contrast is eternity. In light of eternity... This momentary trouble is indeed momentary. You live for 70, 80, 100 years, 120. And yet in light of eternity, it's nothing. And so the Bible says, you think you're suffering. You think you're going through something for a really long time. Look to Jesus. Look to him who is the master who is the Lord, who is the God of all eternity. And in light of eternity, he can take this and make it truly momentary. He can make it so that you will change your point of comparison. And you're not saying, oh, I have suffered for 20 years on this. You will say, oh, even if I have to suffer a hundred years for this, it is nothing in light of being in eternity with the Lord. And so I don't hold to this. I'm not bitter about this. I'm not anxious about it. I'll say, Lord God, even though I'm in the midst of suffering, in light of the fact that you will receive me to yourself and you will hold me dear to you, oh Lord God, let me go through this. In this time. And then the last comparison there in that first section is that there's a comparison of glory. Every other type of glory versus God's glory. You see, every other type of glory in the world cannot satisfy, cannot give you the answer. Every other type of glory, and in that category, I would include how you deal with the problem, how the doctors or medication or something may resolve the situation that you're facing how you may deal with a particular need and that need is met. And you say, whoa, this is glorious. This is great. And no doubt about it, God has done something. 
God has been at work in that situation. God has rescued you and you rejoice in it. But the Bible says, none of that compares to the eternal glory of God that will be revealed when we are with him. And so we say, oh God, I thank you for all of this. But I seek and I desire and I want to be joined with you for eternity in the glory of God that has no comparison. That's what we want for others around us. We're not trying to tell them, oh, it'll be okay, just, you know, do something. We're saying, we want you to know this God. We want you to know this Savior who, you know, in Romans chapter 5 and verse 3 to 5, it reminds us, we glory in our sufferings. We, we, we are fine with what is going on because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. When we trust God through our suffering, we allow Him to shape our faith and our character. Even when it does not make sense to us, even when we're not sure how to go, even when we are perplexed, we're not in despair. We say, Lord God, I trust you. That's our first question. How do we deal with our present troubles? Second question is, how do we see? If you have any difficulty with your vision, you won't know the full extent of the problem until you have a thorough eye exam and vision test, right? There's a, they've got to look in your eyes and make you do some things and then they say, oh, this is the problem or you've got this thing going on and, you know, and then you find out what may be causing that trouble and what the possible treatments or remedies are. So you go through that examination. When we have trouble with our spiritual vision, we need to go through a similar examination. Only in this case, it's not the eye chart on the wall, it's the Word of God that we have to read. It's the Word of God that we have to consider. And we have to be able to say, do I see this? Do I read it? Do I comprehend? Do I receive what this instruction is? And my eye exam, my vision exam, has to be where there is a penetrating, discerning gaze of the Holy Spirit looking into me. Just as that doctor looks into your eyes, is this better, is that better? They put the lenses, they try all sorts of stuff. Right? The Holy Spirit has to look into you. The Holy Spirit has to discern what is going on in you. And the Holy Spirit doesn't do that against our will. When we yield to the Holy Spirit, when we yield to that exam and we say, Lord, you look at me. You examine my heart. You test my ways. You see whether my heart is clean or not. I may even not know it, but I will trust you and I will look to you and Lord, you show me. That is what we depend on. That is what we look to. That we would say, Lord God, you, through your examination of me and through the counsel of godly brothers and sisters, you help me to determine what the problem is and what the necessary response should be. Why do we come together in a church? Because there is the, the agency, there is the means by which God works through the church to reveal our own hearts. 
And when our hearts are revealed, when our vision is revealed, then we see what we're really looking at, what we're not able to see. See, there are three primary reasons for our spiritual vision problems. Three influences that keep us from seeing what is unseen. Right? Three things that keep us from seeing what is unseen. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And the world is constantly giving us something that is distracting, that is captivating, that is tempting. And what does that do? It keeps us from seeing what we need to see. It keeps us from seeing the things of God. Why? Because we're distracted. Our gaze is fixed this way. And we are seeing all of the things that the world puts in front of us. Now the world is not making us do something. The world is appealing to our own desires, to our own flesh, to our own interests. But the world is very good at being able to present something to you that can be quite appealing. And what happens when that appeal, when that captivating, when that tempting thing catches our eye? We're not looking. We're not seeing what needs to be seen. So the unseen, what is of God is unseen because we're not paying attention to it. The flesh, you know, I just I mentioned that the world is just appealing to our flesh. What happens when the flesh responds? When the flesh responds to the prompts, to the things that are there, we end up with wrong beliefs or unbelief. Unbelief in the promises of God, the things of God, the truth of God, and instead put our faith in, put our belief in, put our trust in these wrong beliefs. It was what happened to Adam and Eve. It is what has happened to humanity throughout history. The truth of God is presented. Something else is presented. And we, in our flesh, choose to believe those other truths. Choose to respond to. Choose to receive from this other truth, other source. And so what, if, what is of God is unseen because we need to be corrected. We need to be healed. We need to die to self. We need to believe the truth. We need the fellowship of the saints. When none of those things are happening, we'll give in to the ways of the flesh. And then the third thing, the devil. Remember what we read in verse 4 of the same chapter. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. We are blinded. Something, it's not just us responding in the flesh. There is an outright evil influence to blind us, to cause us to be deceived, to not pay attention to the things of God. What is of God is unseen because we are blinded. You know, the Bible tells us that in the world today, as we live our lives, we have just a glimpse of the glory of God. Moses on the mountain, Solomon in the temple, the disciples with Jesus, even on the Mount of Transfiguration, 
They just have a glimpse. We just, we just get a glimpse of the glory of God. We just get a glimpse of what is unseen. We do get a glimpse. God does intervene. We see the signs and wonders and miracles of God. We see the glory of God being manifested. We pray for that and believe for that and receive that with great joy. But those are just a glimpse of what is to come, of the eternal glory and of the life that we will have or of the union that we will have with the Lord Jesus. Because you see, clearly seeing what is unseen when we get to heaven we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, and this is the New Living Translation version of this. It says, Now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror. Another version says, We see like in a glass darkly. We see something, but it's not altogether clear. But then, then when we are in eternity with Christ, we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete. But then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. So where does that leave us this morning? We want to respond and apply the word of God that we have heard by having, having this eternal perspective. If we are bound in terms of all that is in the world around us and just restricted to a very natural perspective, we miss what is the truth of God. We don't see what we really should. I said earlier that we decide what to do about our trouble based on our comparative analysis of how bad the trouble is. We determine that, right? We say it's small trouble, big trouble, we make our own analysis. And then we may decide to tough it out, grin and bear it. Or we may decide to complain about it. Ah, you know. Or we may decide to do something in our own strength to resolve that trouble. Or we blame someone else for it. Or we just give up. And we say, I can't do this. I can't handle this. I can't do this. Nothing matters. I give up. But the Lord provides a very different path forward when we encounter an obstacle in our way. Once we've changed our perspective, once we're starting to do this, we're saying, oh, you know, I look at things, I compare things differently. There's one more act that we have to take, action that we have to take, which becomes our point of application here. You see, see, you see the same Lord who said in Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That same God said in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your paths. So most importantly, in the context of what we're considering this week, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, and this I'm reading from the Amplified Bible, it says this, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. To humble ourselves means to set aside any self-righteous pride. 
Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you to a place of honor in his service at the appropriate time, casting all your cares, all your anxieties, all your worries, and all your concerns once and for all on him. For he cares about you with deepest affection and watches over you very carefully. That's the promise of the Lord. Obedience that comes from a heart that is humble, a heart that is dependent and not self dependent on the Lord and not self-reliant, a heart that is patient, waiting for God's timing. Whenever it may be, I'm, I will wait. I will wait for the Lord. And a heart that is trusting. Believing what the Lord has spoken. What he said in Psalm 55 verse 22. Cast your burden on the Lord and he shall sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. When we do that, when we obey the Lord in that way. When we say God in humility and with patience and with faith. I cast my cares on you. We don't try to take care of our troubles. We understand that there's a trouble. We have the perspective and the comparison and the point of reference all changed. We look to the Lord for being our support, but we don't try to take care of our troubles on our own. No matter what kind of trouble you're facing, no matter whether it's to you individually or from some other person or affecting your family, no matter what kind of trouble you're facing, don't face this trouble on your own. Don't try to handle this by yourself. The Bible is very clear. Cast your cares on him. I had an opportunity to say to somebody just yesterday, if the Lord had said, deal with your problems and your troubles, try the best that you can, and then come to me when you, when, you know, after that, then we could have said it's on us. It's on us. We've got to figure out how to deal with our troubles. But the Lord does not say, you deal with the trouble and then if you can't do it, you come to me. He says, first and foremost, for all the trouble that you will face, cast your cares on me. That means I've got to run to him. We sang about this. And we said, this is not our burden to carry. We want to come to him and say, Lord God, I cast my cares on you because you said, this is what it is. I'm going to hold you, God, accountable to your word. The Lord wants us to do that. It is not presumptuous of us to do that. It is right for us to say, Lord, this is your promise. You said, cast your cares on me because I care for you. I'm going to do that. I'm not going to carry this. It's, I don't need to say, oh, I'm carrying this burden. I'm going to cast this on you. And I have no idea how it will be resolved. I don't know how long it will take. I don't know how the situation will be resolved, reversed. But I'm going to do this step. I'm going to cast my cares on you. And how do you cast your cares? You go to him in prayer. You go to him with the word, or the promise of the word. You stand on that promise. And you bring all those thoughts that are there. And you take those thoughts captive. And you allow the Lord to take it. And you're saying, Lord, this is what I'm thinking. This is what I'm feeling. This is what I'm experiencing. I give this to you. This is the memory that I have. I give this to you. 
This is the thing that needs to be erased from my mind. This is the pain that I need to be healed from. This is the wound that is still a gaping wound. And every time I touch it, oh, it hurts. Lord God, I need you to take this from me. I need you to intervene. I cast this care on you. But you know the reason that the Bible says once and for all is so that we will be diligent not to pick up the care again. When we cast our cares on him, we don't want to go back next day and say, you know what, let me take that back. You can't bear it. You couldn't bear it before. You can't bear it now. Don't say, well, I'm stronger now. I've had this thing. Now I'll take care of it. I'll go resolve this problem. Leave the care at the Lord's feet. Cast the care on Him and leave it there. Don't pick it up again. Don't try to resolve something on your own. Say, Lord God, you do this. You do this. Now, in each one of our lives, this is going to look different. It will look different in terms of our circumstances and the situations that we're going through and the people we're interacting with. And so we will have to trust the Lord to say, Lord God, I need to know how I personally can deal with this. The pain that you experience because of what's going on in your life is different from the pain that somebody else is experiencing. And you may not even be able to relate to that. You can't even understand all the pain. But you can pray. You can pray for your brother and your sister. You can pray for the church. All through this church. It doesn't matter whether we have 2,000 members or 50 members. The same set of problems are there in the churches, in our lives, in our circumstances. So this evening, or this morning, pardon me, I want to encourage you. Pray for your brothers and sisters. Pray for yourself. Come into the prayer meetings, into the fasting and prayer, into all these other opportunities to pray for people by name and to say, Lord God, whatever care they are carrying right now, Lord God, let them cast it on you. You take this care. And you take care of it. Oh Lord God, we as a church want to be free. We want to be burden free Christians. We want to be a church that's just, you know, we're floating. There's nothing holding us down. There's no weight that is hindering us. There is no net that is entangling us. There is no chain that is binding us. We have been set free. And it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And so we want to encourage one another like that. You see your brother or your sister struggling. You see your brother or your sister going through a tough time. Don't just say it'll be okay. Pray for them. Pray that they will cast their cares on the Lord. And as we do that, as we go through that, as we rejoice in Him, the promise of the Lord, the promise of the Lord is that we in this earth and certainly for all eternity, will be joined together in the glory of the Lord and see the culmination of all that he has promised. When he says he will save us, when he says he will deliver us, when he says he will be with us, when he says, I will do this to present you to the Lord himself. Oh, we trust him. We look to him. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much that you love us so much that you not only came and gave your life for us so that we may be washed. Lord, what we sang even this earlier, earlier this morning. Well, Lord, so that we would be washed. Our sins would be made as white as snow. Oh, I thank you, Lord, that you did that. 
But I thank you that you didn't just do that and then say, okay, now deal with your life. You said every single day, in every single way, when we face trouble of any kind, we can cast our cares on you because you care for us. Thank you, Lord. Change our perspective, Lord. Change our point of comparison, Lord. Let us not look at our troubles and see how they're overwhelming us, but let us look at our troubles and say, these are light, these are momentary, these don't affect the glory of God, these have no power over what the Lord has promised me in his word. I look to the Lord and he will deliver me. Lord God, let us be a church that is walking in that freedom, that rejoices in that freedom, that is contagious with this freedom so that others may also experience this life that is truly life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.